Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly discussion that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. That's D-H-A-R-M-A media.com. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Conversations. Z, it's been a minute because uh, we just got back. I'm still getting over the jet lag. We got back Sunday. It was interesting. It was the first time we'd been to India in 14 years. And that 14 years had just gone by in a flash. Last time we were there, it was right before we got married. We had no kids. And this time it was like a homecoming. I mean, it was beautiful in that we were able to take our three kids over there. India is half of them, half of their culture, their heritage. They met this entirely different side of the family. They had one adventure after the other. And it was really cool to see. And maybe you've seen something similar with your kids. But they were exposed to just a completely different way of life. Uh, so the traffic on the roads is different. The way that people live is different. The colors, the smells are different. The way that people interact, the roles that they play are just night and day compared to what you see in the U.S. So just navigating that was this incredible experience for the family. And then we just did so many things. So we saw different family members. We ended up going to the hills and we spent three days in the mountains, which was just this beautiful area. We saw the Taj Mahal. Uh, we went to Jaipur, spent some time at the Ambar Fort, had some guides, got some history around the whole thing. And the nice thing about kids, they're still young enough. They're very innocent. They're very open. So they connected with everyone. Uh, they were holding hands with my uncle. Uh, that I think they'd met him maybe once before when he'd come to the U.S. They hadn't seen him in years. But they were tracking him down. They were forcing him to tell them stories every night. Uh, they were hanging out with our drivers. Our drivers were carrying them around on their shoulders. They were just having a great time wherever they went. So really had a nice time over there. Ended up coming back, and now we're settling back into New York. And as usual, Z, we get on different topics and just talk about what's happening in life. And we get into relationship dynamics. So that's what we've been talking about in the background. And I was sharing some of the issues that come up when I spend a lot of time with my family and maybe some guilt that I have with certain relationships in the family. Uh, and am I really living up to what my parents want? Am I disappointing them? Even at 45 years old, these are still questions that are going through my mind. They still do so much for me. They're a source of support. And am I holding up my end of the bargain? And as we're getting into the Z, you were just advising me to think of it differently, to remember that my parents see me the same way that I see my kids. And it's not so much whether I'm living up to my end of the bargain. There is no end of the bargain. Their duty is to provide, to take care of their children and their family. And that's just what they do. And there's nothing more beautiful or sacred than doing that. And your advice to me was, let them do that. Help them do that. Show gratitude, show reverence. And I think it gets to this concept of love and what love is. Because the way that you define love is unconditional devotion. And it doesn't mean that you have to like the other person, that you always have to get along. But you've got a sense of duty. You've got a sense of connection. And you've got a sense of whatever I can do in the moment to ease someone else's suffering, to provide them a lift, to raise them up, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to ask questions and I'm not going to stress about it. I'm not going to try and finesse it. I'm not going to extract something. I'm just going to give. I'm just going to give of myself unconditionally. And that's what love is. So I thought that was a very beautiful way of putting it. And then we started talking a little more and contrasting that with how people have started to think about love. And in our society, we're in a place where society is very transactional. A part of it is economic, just the way that uh, Western economies are set up and the, the way that business is conducted. Uh, there's always an idea of what am I getting out of the deal? Uh, so I'm entering into a relationship or a transaction. I got to make sure that I get mine, that I get my piece, and maybe that I get the better end of the bargain. And that carries over into human relationships, which could be the reason why people feel so lonely and they feel so isolated, because you don't have something more fundamental that's connecting people. What you have is a, a provisional arrangement where as long as you do X for me, we're good. But if you stop doing that and you don't give me what I want and I'm not happy, 
then I'm going to walk out the door. And in some cases, maybe I'm going to burn you to the ground because I'm so angry and I'm so disappointed. So if you think about that mentality, that creates a lot of stress. I mean, that's not a foundation for stability. It's not a foundation that nurtures. It's almost like standing on a rug. And it's cool you're on the rug, but someone might pull out that rug at any minute if you don't give them what they want. And I think about this with my kids. I mean, that's probably the perfect definition of love for my kids. I'll have them come to me and be like, you're the worst dad in the world because you're not letting me use the iPad. You're not letting me eat what I want to eat. You're just terrible. I hate you. <laughs> they have these conversations and they've got tears in their eyes. And then things turn around and 15 minutes later, they ask for something else or they get what they want. And they're like, yay, daddy. And they start clapping and jumping up and down and giving me a big hug. Oh, I love you so much. You're so great. And it's all about immediate needs. So if they get what they want, they love me. If they don't get what they want, they hate me. And it's cool because they're my kids, so it doesn't bother me. Um, but that's a different sort of relationship. If we've got an intimate partner, if we've got friends, you don't want that kind of relationship. You want that stability. You want that mutual, unconditional exchange. So that's what we're going to talk about today, this idea of love. And before we get into this concept of unconditional love, or sorry, uh, unconditional devotion, which I think is a beautiful way of putting it. I do want to ask you, Z, about the transactional side. And maybe you can ease us into this conversation. Why is it bad to have transactional relationships? I mean, in a sense, as we've talked about before, whenever two people get together, there are certain things that bring them together, whether it's mutual interests. Uh, economics can be a part of it. You know, we pair up sometimes because economically it's more efficient, or uh, you, you could be a woman and you're looking for a provider. Uh, and you see a lot of couples where there's a big age difference because you have men who are more successful. Uh, you have women who don't have the financial resources, but they've got beauty and vitality, and there's a natural exchange. So it, why is a transactional situation bad? Or maybe, Z, what are, how should we think about transactions versus this concept of unconditional devotion? Well, let me make a few corrections here. I, I don't think it's good or bad. What makes it good or bad is how it turns out, right? And that goes to integrity. So when we think about transactional relationships, we, we, we think about relationships based on a certain duty. Duty means you believe that you have a moral obligation, possibly to be honest and truthful, whatever that happens to be. Love is very different. Now, I was sitting here while you were talking, Vin, and I wanted to kind of uh, go into the addict of my memory. And I remember many years ago, let's say circa 30 years ago, if you went to the dictionary and you looked up the, devo the, the, the definition of love, it would say unsolicited devotion. Devotion, immersion in the divine, unsolicited, that I see divinity in you and I will honor that. And without solicitation, without any type of sense of exchange or reward, right? So that's what love used to mean. It doesn't mean that anymore. It has a lot to do with things that are provisional, such as passion and liking people. And so I wanted to, you know, clear that up and we'll, we'll jump right back into that. But I don't believe that transactional relationships in themselves are bad. I think that the, the dishonesty that one incurs due to the stressful nature of lying about it. You're here for the money and only the money. Or you're here for whatever resource and only that. And in exchange for that, I will do certain things. If people could have that conversation, there would be much less stress and much more peace in, in, in the way we engage one another. It is when we bring into it the illusion, the willful illusion that we paint, that is, it is love, that it's unsolicited devotion. Uh, the ex-president's wife, uh, who was a kind of a model, just happened to see this guy and just fall in love with him. He could have been a dirt farmer. He could have been a chimney sweep. He could have been a... Uh, 
a cleaner of roads or whatever, and she would have saw him and she would have put off her stiletto heels and just ran and jumped into the arms of this uh, fella. Who believes that? Nobody. There was an arrangement. I will pay you X amount of money to perform certain acts. Here it is. There's a lot of integrity that goes with that. I think when one goes into a, they have a fiduciary duty to fulfill this interaction because they made a contract. I don't think anything's wrong with that. What we get wrong is when we lie about it and we say it's something it is not, and then we build, that takes a lot more energy. You're with this person because you just adore them. They have a great sense of humor, a wonderful temperament, and a body to die for. No, that's not why you're there. And we can look around, and there's a lot of reasons that we hold relationships with people. Um, if we humble ourselves enough, we know that we're with partners that are the best we can do. And that's not a bad thing. If you've worked on yourself to a high degree, you are truly a person that has created value in your own self. No one can measure your value. You can. And if you surrender yourself to others, of course, they can measure your value. But I'm saying one who is unvanquished, one who's unsurrendered. I've worked on myself. I've studied. I've educated myself. And this is the person I enjoy being with. And we, we have enough things that bond us together. And there you go. So that's the relationship. There isn't, isn't really a, it's a, it's a mutual beneficiary relationship without a clear line of transaction, right? You're not sitting, you make this much, I make this much, you'll pay me X amount to be around you or whatever, right? And that's the agreement. So it always goes back to having the courage to be honest. Let's be honest. And that requires, again, the subduing of the ego. So what most people refer to as love is really a um, kind of a casual fondness. Uh, and love isn't casual fondness. Well, I like you today. I don't like you. You're interested in me. I'm, I'm all head over heels. Now I change. What people call love is really is not love. It, it, it's a provisional liking. Everybody knows what I mean by that. It's provisional. Yeah, I like you today. And today, I hate your guts. It's like what your kids do. A lot of times, regrettably, your kids don't really like you. Love is a very mature emotion, sentiment, thing. I, 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 love is beyond description. So it's more than an emotion. It's more than a sentiment. It is, it is something that is only able to, you could never explain with the words that I have. But kids don't have it. Kids like you as long as you do what you need to do. Then they'll cut you off. But you have such a great duty to them that that duty, fulfilling your duty to them, elevates your humanity. As time goes on, as they mature and as your relationship matures, love starts to reveal itself. That's why we see the challenge with the elderly when people are forced to store their parents away because there's not that type of bond on both parts. For one, the parents ideally will do everything they can in the most loving way to not be a burden on their children. And on the other side, the children will do everything they can to support their parents through that period of time. That's nothing romantic. It's nothing enjoyable. It is horrific. It's everything, but because there is love, you do it. You, you continue to reinforce, persevere, and amplify your duty. Your duty. Your, your sense of a moral obligation, too. If you don't have that, then you're constantly looking for a warehouse to put them in. And they're fighting you over that. So that shows you that when we just kind of romanticize the human interaction, love is something that has to invites you into it. It sustains itself. It is of itself. And that's why there are so many books and so many libraries on earth trying to describe love. And 
when you understand that, you can let go of that. So you can look at your partner and say, yeah, I have a provisional liking for you. And that will eventually, over time, possibly turn into love. It's not, no such thing as love at first sight. That is a provisional liking. You look good. I look good. I felt this energy. Woo-hoo! How many of those relationships end rather quickly? How many of those relationships ends with restraining orders, divorces, hate, murder, right? What you laughing about? It's true. <laughs> what are you laughing? It's true. Yeah. Um, there are those, again, relationships that people connect. And it's not just on one level. It might, it might be the physical thing, that, the energetic thing. There's a lot of elements. But when you have that loving relationship, that means that during the bitter times, you're still there. During the cold times, you're still there. During the loud or the quiet times, you're still there. Because that energetic element has now offered you something in a very conditional way that elevates you. And because of that, it has created a kind of a, a central momentum that keeps you going. That keeps you going. And that is the beauty of it. Very few of us will experience that in our life. We can imagine it. We can speculate on it. But it's not when you're happy. It's not when things are going well. It's not for the youth. It's not for the beautiful. It's for life. It's for life. And so as we start to understand the power of it, we can then understand what it's not. And we understand what it's not, we understand then how to cultivate it. Right? So when you talk about a parent, what if your parents are always disappointed with you, but they're always your parent? They're not disappointed with you. They're disappointed with their ideas they had for you. They're disappointed with themselves. What about when you're disappointed with your siblings? Because they aren't what you want them to be. So it's not about loving them. But you do have a moral duty to them based on whatever your moral metric is and your moral compass is to support your brother or sister. But you don't necessarily love them. There are times when you have a good time together. And you say, you know what? You're great, sis, bro. You're great. I love you. That's provisional liking. I like you now. But next week, like the kids say, Daddy, I hate you. I wish you were dead. Get closer to the balcony so I can push you off the 20th story. And actually that happens in a moment of anger or rage or when that provisional liking subsides to a provisional hating. People do terrible things to people they love. Every day in the news, there's somebody who used to be in love with somebody or care for somebody. Now they're hunting them down and killing them. Now, when the person has that, that pure form, that cosmic, divine, unsolicited devotion, good day, bad day, I'm staying in the middle of all of this. You hurt me, you pissed me off, you disappointed me. I'm right here, still going down the middle. You brought me flowers and gifts and you love me and we had a great day together. I'm going to stay right in the middle of that because that's not going to, none of that is forever. But what is forever is the, the ability to love. That's why there are so many people who upon the death of their beloved is content, are content to be alone because the love was not something that could weigh or was bound by the physical presence of that person. That doesn't mean you cannot feel and have provisional liking for another person. But it means that that longing for the presence of that person is not as strong as the connection you had with that person. Unsolicited devotion. Why it's important for us to understand that as we go through different relationships with people, we find ourselves disappointed often with people that we have a fondness for. You know, a, a transient fondness for, say, oh, you're not what I am today. And the disappointment, disappointment, you feel it, you're hurt, you're disappointed, you're disappointed. 
How do we deal with that? You deal with that by understanding what you're really bothered by. I found myself at times in my life that you're, 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 you're in a, a, a relationship uh, and you have what, what they call that term when you first like somebody, you have this infatuation with them. And you get to know them and it just starts to just go away. It's like, ugh, how did I even start to like you? And then you keep trying sometimes because now you're projecting onto that person what you would like them to be. You're imagining if they change this, tweak that, do this or do that, they will be just right for you. So now you're trying to kind of glue somebody together. You're trying to model them together, hoping they'll be what you want. Doesn't work like that. But as we start to understand the idea of unsolicited devotion, the different ranges of caring, liking, and so forth, we walk in honesty. We walk in clarity. We live in integrity. And in doing that, you can make decisions and have judgments that are much clearer. And you, have, you, you introduce less opportunity for heartbreak, stress, and disappointment into your life. And remember that even if someone is your best friend, you don't have to always agree with them or agree with what they're doing, but the term best says that that's the best you can do. This is the best person for me. This is the, this is the friend that God gave me. And you can kick your ego in the nuts and say, I got just what I deserved. So when you're disappointed with your friend or disappointed with your partner, that's just what you deserve. If you feel you want something else, change your damn self. You follow me, Vin? Yeah, you bring up some interesting points. And I think the first one around, uh, around the provisional liking and not lying to ourselves. So I like what you said, that there's nothing wrong with transactional relationships, but we just need to be honest about it. That makes a lot of sense to me. If you're not honest about it, then your expectations are all off. You don't know why you're getting into conflict. You don't know why the other person is disappointed. You expect them to behave a certain way. Uh, maybe you expect the unsolicited devotion, but because it's more of a transactional arrangement, you're not getting that. And so that leads to stress. Uh, that leads to anger. Uh, you end up feeling hurt. You end up pissed off. So that clarity makes a lot of sense to me. And as we talk about, it's a mechanism. The more accurate our perception is of the world and our relationships, the less stress that we have, the less dissonance there is or gap there is between what we expect and what actually is. So that's something that we definitely want to do, just have a very clear view of whatever we're getting into. So if we start with that, acknowledge that transactional relationships aren't bad, but maybe they're not complete. So they give us something. Uh, they're provisional. They're a form of exchange. Uh, but it's a different type of relationship and interaction than the love that we're talking about. And if we move from the transactional or the provisional to the unsolicited devotion, the benefits of that, to me, also seem pretty clear. It's just, uh, to me, a form of stability. Uh, that if you're in a relationship with someone or you've got someone's support, it's like you were telling me, Z, uh, that I've got my parents, uh, I've got my dad, and that level of support that I have from people who are going to want me to do well no matter what, no matter what I do, no matter what the circumstance is, I can always pick up the phone and call them. I don't even have to call them. They're going to reach out to me, check in with me. Uh, they're going to want to help me. It benefits them to help me. And that gives me a lot of freedom to live my life in a way where there's certain things that I don't need to worry about. Or even if I do worry about it, I feel better because I know that I'm not in this alone. Uh, I'm not just in this vortex spiraling through the universe by myself. I've got certain people that I can lean on. And you contrast that to your situation, Z. You lost your father at a very young age. You never had that. So you've gone through life in a totally different way. You made different decisions. Uh, you look at life in maybe more harsh terms than other people do. And like anything else, there's a cost and, and benefit to that. Uh, but as you expressed when we were talking earlier, 
a lot of times you, I don't know if you long for it, uh, but you feel like it's something that you missed, not having uh, that father in your life uh, beyond the age of 13, and not having someone that you could lean on, not having that unsolicited devotion. Uh, so I think that's something that gives us a foundation, that lifts us up, that gives us a certain amount of security. Uh, so, of course, if we can cultivate those relationships, great. But let's talk a little bit about the other side of unsolicited devotion. So the receiving end, to me, seems very clear. Of course, we want to be in situations where other people are supporting us, and we know that we're not going through just the daily stresses or uh, the catastrophes in life alone. We've got someone else we can lean on. But talk a bit about the other side of it, the giving. So what is the advantage of being in a situation where you are providing that devotion? What does it do for us when we put ourselves in the mindset of unsolicited devotion and I'm going to treat someone, I'm going to recognize their divinity, I'm going to recognize their humanity, I'm going to uplift them because that uplifts me. Talk to us a bit about that dynamic. You know, I'm going to always go to the classical text. So we know from the Vedic texts and even from some of the, the old Buddhist writings and Taoist writings that one of the most express ways of transcending your karma, the, the endless cycle of death and rebirth, and rebirth, is through selfless service, seva. Fulfilling your duty is a form of selfless service. So when you are with the people that you care about, you have, you have no wall up. You're fulfilling your duty. You're doing the service. And oftentimes that service is expressed in, in simple kindness, general kindness, and general human compassion. You become a better human being on every level of your humanity. And you are given those cities, those extraordinary gifts from God that the universe provides. There will oftentimes be days that are so horrible that you as a human being may feel there it's an impossible weight to bear. And like during a, a storm, when the sun comes out, it's, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. It's like after all the storms in California, if you drive around now, there's nothing but beauty everywhere, like up the coast. Everything that was dry is, is renewed. And these are the things that the, the cosmic divine provides for us. And I'm not a spooky spiritual person. I'm just looking at the physics of nature. Caitlin, we were just talking about, Caitlin went on a walk and there's this weird fish that's in the creeks around here in California that when the creeks dry up, there's nothing there. You just walk through a dirt place where a creek used to be. When the rains come, this fully developed fish uncoils from the rocks, right? It's like the weirdest, most extraordinary thing you've ever seen. From the looking, it was like there was an area that was dead. And once it is served by nature and it receives the services, the unsolicited devotion of nature, it brings life. And that too is with us as human beings. I know that as you, you, everybody knows, you know, my story and stuff like that. And I, I think about just to share like the father stories. I know now at this age in my life, uh, I've outlived my dad by 30 years, just about 30 years. Um, I'm older than he ever was. I should say by 30 years. He's been gone for uh, 50 plus years. And I look at my life and the decision I made, who, who I made, that, that hardship tempered me in a certain way. But there are things I'm working on now as an old man that I realized talking to you guys and thinking about decisions I've made in my life. I do catastrophize. If something goes wrong in my life because I had no one to really count on or rely on, who just love me no matter what, I would have to make extreme decisions, extreme adjustments, to move to different countries, to go here to there, to resolve issues, to live a certain way of life 
that was um, that was overly armored, I should say, that took its own toll. It benefited me, but it took its own toll. So when you are in service, you transcend that. And that's something that I've done. I've always tried to be in service of the people that love me. And that is the thing that has kept me okay. So whenever we bring people into our world, we treat them as a lost or missing member of the family that has returned. And in offering that service, it's like taking, it's like doing a memorial service and going back and tending to the grave of a loved one. Cleaning the grave, stone, polish, bringing the flowers, whatever your ritual is. Why not do that ritual with the living? And that's what I've done. And it has given me um, resilience beyond what I would imagine myself to be able to, to, to even be deserving of. So service does that. So when you practice that unsolicited devotion, you open your heart to that, you become better as a human being. You become whole. And when you we say being whole, again, I don't want people to think happy, happy, joy, joy. Part of being whole is also being resilient, being constant, which are also virtues, resiliency, constancy, reliable, being reliable, being able to count on that person, showing up. Those are all the benefits of accepting, practicing unsolicited devotion. Um, so on both the giver and the receiver benefits. For the receiver, they are fed a certain energy that inspires their humanity. For the giver, it unburdens them from excesses and stresses and loneliness and barrenness. And you get to grow your soul as a human being, as the Vedas say, transcend your karma or the endless cycle of death and rebirth. You follow me? As you're talking, Z, this term unsolicited devotion, it makes me think of another way that people have expressed the same concept. And someone once said that love is not a state, so it's not a noun, it's a verb. So it's not that you're in love and you meet someone and you either love them or you don't. Love is a continual mindset and it's an act of selfless service. And that's how you cultivate the feeling. So you get to the noun through the verb by showing that devotion, by showing up, by fulfilling your duty, that's what creates the bond and holds people together. But it's not something that just magically happens, which maybe is another fantasy or mistake or malnarrative that we've adopted, that we expect we're going to meet someone and everything is going to be perfect and we'll be swept off our feet and we'll just be in the state of bliss. And people don't think about the effort that goes into it, which is the unsolicited devotion part of it which is that constant showing up. You know, you get up in the morning, you show up. Uh, you are upset, you still come back, you still do your duty, you still take care of your family, you still take care of your loved ones. You put on a brave face. Uh, maybe you shield them for some, from some of the hardships that you're facing because you don't want to bring them down. If they need something, if they need support, you provide that support even though you might not feel like doing it. You might feel lazy, you might feel tired, you might feel sick. You just get up and you do it. And with my kids, it's very easy to see. I mean, there are days where I don't feel like showing up for whatever reason. But there's never an option not to show up. There's just this sense that this is what I got to do. I, I got to take care of them. And if I don't feel good about myself or I feel sick or whatever, I'm going to put that aside and whatever they need, I'm going to provide. Uh, so we can start with the, the family. I mean, maybe that's the right place to start when we cultivate this sense of unsolicited devotion and expand from there. So we've got the wife, we've got the intimate partner, we've got the parents, we expand from that to the friends. Uh, I want to talk about the mechanics of this a little bit, Z, uh, because the danger perhaps of unsolicited devotion, I mean, we've got a finite amount of time and energy. And like we often observe on this podcast, 
everything in life is an exchange of energy. And we want something in exchange. Even if we've got that unsolicited devotion, we need to direct that in a way where it's going to uplift us, where it's going to elevate our humanity. And we're not just blindly dispersing this. And we're not treating everyone the same way or we're not overextending ourselves. Uh, We're making sure that we take care of ourselves so that we can renew ourselves. Uh, Because if we spend all of our time in selfless acts of service, to every single person around us, we may end up depleted. We may end up in a situation where we can't function. There's got to be some limit about this. So talk a bit about that, Z. How do we practically implement this concept? I mean, I think with children, maybe it's the most clear. uh, But if we build on that, how do you think about it? I mean, is it a set of concentric circles? Uh, How do we approach this with the different relationships in our life? Like anything, drill compels habits of obedience. Your japa, is said in yoga, is your drill. And that's why sometimes with anything, we have first an intelligent concept, and then we have a, a blueprint of that. So it's, it starts with kind of an inner exploration. Um, but that requires a certain level of intelligence to, to look inside yourself without the, the ego blocking you. And you see the world and how you'd like it to be. You see how it is and you see how you play your role in it. So I've had many experiences that helped me be more available to be more open-hearted, so to say, without, again, people oftentimes think that is something weak and it has a certain kind of symbolism of being uh, kind of a weak person, um, uh, cowardly, um, super effeminate man or something that people think they're more uh, compassionate. That's not the case. It requires a lot of strength to be that because human beings uh, can definitely be a handful. And especially if you're dealing with people who aren't working on any type of enlightenment, they're not trying to do any type of monitoring or chanting, anything. it's really hard to deal with that. But what you do is look at that and then you surrender the judgment and observe causality of the people you're interacting with, why they behave the way they behave. And you will learn to appreciate it. I told you about, I think I mentioned a lot of times, experiences I've had in the military that I reflect upon now that helped shape me today. I remember being in the military and serving with a guy, and I've told this story before, and he, his parents had branded a swastika into his neck when he was a little kid. So right under his collar, he, you could see, obviously, a swastika. And um, of course, when we get assigned to work together, I'm like, oh man. Okay, here we go. I'm going to never sleep around this dude. I'm going to go in and take him out as soon as I can because I know he's going to take me out. And he was from Tennessee, and he had a heavy Tennessee accent. Talk like this, like everything say, like had gum in his mouth, something like that. You had to, I was always saying, huh, what, what did you say? And it just sounded like all his words were jumbled together. You know that Tennessee accent? It's a very interesting way of talking. I'm wondering, how did this guy even pass the AFES, the ASVAB, to get into the military? How did this even happen? Good God. And over a period of time, you could start understanding him. And, and people from this part of the country understood. It was kind of a dialect. And he would say nigga so fast and so smoothly that you didn't even know he was saying nigga. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Yeah, yeah see, yeah, he over here, me. I, the, the nigga, the nigga, see, yeah. I said, what, what did you just say? Did you call me in Zazi? See? And he didn't even know he was saying it. And we got, we, we served together and we were in a, a, a unit together in our um, recovery unit, um, air crew recovery unit. And we used to go on operations together. And, and many of these operations, of course, were inherently hazardous. And I was, uh, the team leader, and he was my second. And over a period of 18 months, which seems like in the military, 18 months seems like 18 years, that we served together, him and I became very close. He started to understand my ways, 
the way I ate, my habits, my behavior. We could communicate each with each other without really saying anything. He ended up um, becoming a casualty. He lost his life. And in doing that, he protected me. It was probably something was meant to take me out. But to this day, I reflect upon that. His reflex at the worst moment was to stand in harm's way for me. Though he was raised to be extraordinarily racist uh, with those kinds of views, it was, it's more complicated than one would think. And oftentimes we don't want complicated. We want yes, no, do you agree, disagree. Life isn't like that. And I had already been studying, you know, my, my martial arts, my training, my, my Taoism, Buddhism, all that. I've always been into that. But it was really hard for me to adjust that to the people you meet in the military who are the opposite of that oftentimes. They promote ignorance and unenlightenment. But at the time, I realized I was kind of cocky because I felt I was enlightened and everybody wasn't, but in his own way, he was. He knew, right? He knew who was there for him. He understood he had went in for the same reason I was with better economic conditions. When I met his family, when I returned his remains and met his family, his father actually apologized to me. He explained to me that he had never left the area that he grew up in. And he had heard things and were taught things that he believed to be fact. And it was through reading his son's letters about our operations, about what we were doing and about me, that he realized how much he didn't know. He didn't go any further. He didn't suddenly start traveling the world and trying to save babies in starving countries. But he realized that he didn't know a lot. And he was talking, and he had been speaking most of his life in an expert way about things he didn't know. And he had passed on these cultural features, tried to to his son, but they didn't stick. But what did stick was the love his family had for each other. And that's the love that he offered to me at the worst moment in our, li our young lives in the heat of combat. He showed me unsolicited devotion that cost him his life and preserved mine. When you have those experiences, the bar becomes very high in dealing with people, in dealing with yourself. That when we have a deeper understanding of ourselves, we then become better in narrating other people as opposed to simply judging them. Not how screwed up they are, but how did they get that way? What was their journey that brought them to this way of thinking and behaving? Then it makes you come back to yourself. Why do you think and behave the way you do? That begins a process of self-growth. And the more intelligent you are, the more refined knowledge you have, the greater capacity you have to fulfill duty. The greater you fulfill your duty, the greater opportunity you have to to immerse yourself in devotion. Once immersed in devotion, you see the benefits of devotion. Then you strive for it to be unsolicited. So you're still human. You still go through all the ups and downs. You're still a helpless sinner. But you think different. You know how to screen and deal with people. You're not going out and, and, and what they call trying to show how righteous you are or virtue signaling. You don't go and invite the homeless into your house just to prove a point. You may kick them out of your house or, or chase them down the road, but you know with those that are dealing with you in a way that you would like to be dealt with, you offer an open heart. And then you grow that. The benefit is that you, you are a stronger person. You have more resources. Though I tell people all the time, I'm the richest poor man you'll ever meet because I have a lot of commerce in my good relationship with people. I'm able to go to different parts of the world and I have friends, people that can genuinely say you can stay at my home. 
um, you have a good reputation. You paid it forward with me. So it's not a lot, but for me it's a lot. I'm, I'm glad that I did that. If my time comes tomorrow, and in my last moments here, I can say that I lived a good life, and I had a lot of love in my life. And I earned as much as I could because I positioned myself in a way that I set an example. Help people out to the extent that you can. Support people to the extent that you can. Don't overdo it for the sake of looking for virtue points. You can't win virtue points and then go and cash them in and say, look at me, I won the prize. As Lao Tzu says, just do your best and walk away. Don't invite unhealthiness into your life under the guise that you need to be tested. That's one of the things that's going on is you see the collapse of a lot of urban areas to the roving insanity. You're not helping roving insane people by facilitating their roving insanity. What would help the most is if each of us made ourselves the best person we could. And we, when we delegate statesmen and so forth, they should reflect what's in your heart. And if your heart's a good place, you have good statesmen. If it's in a bad place, you have a failed governments, failed politicians, collapsing cities, uh, failed uh, distribution of resources. So you can see how it affects all of us. It's, it's, it's like nuclear energy. When we can act out more of that unsolicited devotion, then it is contagious. But it, it doesn't spread like the COVID. It spreads slower. It spreads deeper. Take care of your own home first. Work on yourself first. Fulfill your duty to your kids first. Be the best partner you can be to your partner first. And you know what? That doesn't even mean you're going to be successful at it. Your kids may get up one day and say, you know, you're shit as a parent. But you know what? That's cool because I did my best. I didn't sell your kidneys. I'm not the Turpin family. You know what I mean? I did my best. I didn't know what to do. You're a weird little kid. You have a strange personality. You're nothing like me. You just kind of look like my aunt or something. Uh, but I did my best. And hopefully you'll appreciate it. Um, if you don't, then I did my best because your kids don't love you. It's provisional liking. They may learn to love you later in life. I learned, my mother and I had, as you know, had a horrible relationship. After her death, I got a better perspective of her and why she was the way she was. Once I figured out why she was that way, my heart opened up and I surrendered my disappointment with her. And I am grateful that, that she had done her best by me. And for that, I love my mom. For she sacrificed for me. And she was broken and damaged and beat up because she took so many hits. But even in doing all that, even as wounded and broken as she was, my life's been okay. Yeah, Zia, I think uh, this idea of doing the best that you can, that's all that we can do. And that gives us a certain level of confidence. Uh, so tying that back to the idea of unsolicited devotion, it, maybe it's an idea that we're going to give what we can of ourselves without regard to what we get in exchange, uh, without regard to anything. There's an unconditional aspect to it. And we just give and we support and we don't ask questions and that's the best we can do. We can't control the outcomes. I mean, in a sense, it's a very Zen philosophy, uh, but it's uh, the giving without the expectation of anything coming back in our direction. Or maybe a little more precisely, even if you do have that expectation, you keep on giving regardless of whether that expectation is realized, because that's your nature. And as I think about it, we, we talked about my dad earlier on. Uh, before we got into our discussion. And to me, he's a perfect example of that. I mean, the man, I, I've never seen anyone with such a capacity to give and and keep on giving. And where that comes from, I don't know. But he takes care of everyone in the family. He takes care of the immediate family, his wife, his children. He takes care of the elder generation in India. 
uh, and the United States. He takes care of the extended family. He takes care of business partners, and he just does it. And there's almost nothing that someone would ask him to do that he would refuse if he's got a relationship with that person. And they ask sincerely, he'll, he'll figure out a way to do it. And I don't know if that's a model for everyone to follow. Uh, certain people can and others can't. I mean, I look at my mom and she definitely gives, but there are limits. It affects her a little bit more. And if she gives too much of herself, she needs more time to step back, recharge. Uh, she just doesn't have the same capacity as my father, um, which is fine. That's who she is. And uh, she does what is different than my dad. And uh, she definitely gives, but not everyone's got the same capacity. I guess I bring my dad up just because he's the most immediate example that I've seen of this unsolicited devotion. And as we talked about earlier, at times that makes me feel uncomfortable because I feel like I owe him something or I'm not living up to my end of the bargain. But if I take a different perspective, as we talked about Z, that's just his nature. That's what the man is going to do. You know, like the sun is going to shine. The sun shines in our face and it gives us that light and it doesn't expect anything in return. That's the nature. That's what it is. Uh, That's just the sun being the sun. And maybe that's the attitude that we want to cultivate. We want to get to a point where we're giving freely of ourselves without the expectation, without reservations. And we're doing it because that becomes a part of who we are. And in doing that, as you said, that's a path to enlightenment. Uh, That's a path to reciprocation. So we get that nice human commerce. We get other people who are willing to look out for us, even if that's not the reason we're doing it. Uh, That's uh, that's just the mechanics. That's almost the physics of the, the exchange. You do that, you naturally attract other people to yourself. So you, you end up with a community of people that's going to look out for you and support you, uh, which is a nice benefit of doing this. And I think there's a final aspect to this, which maybe you can shed some light on, that by doing it, it's almost like when we give that way, in order to give, in order to practice unsolicited devotion, we have to have a very high opinion of ourselves. We have to be very secure in ourselves. We have to recognize our own worth, our own humanity. Because if we debase ourselves, if we think we're not that good, not that exciting, not that important, then we're going to treat other people the same way. Uh, it's like, okay, why do I want to deal with these masses? They're as depraved and as messed up as I am. So what, why should I help them? Whereas if we look at ourselves as a gift and an expression of divinity, then we start seeing that in other people. And then that maybe moves us in the path of more naturally wanting to give and being in this, this state of unsolicited devotion. So Z, as we're wrapping up, maybe you can just offer some thoughts on that. Because I think there are two aspects to this. So one is that we have to be very secure in ourselves to operate that way. But also if we open ourselves up to unsolicited devotion, It seems to me that it works in the other direction, that it also elevates us. It gives us more of a strong sense of self, more of an appreciation of who we are. Uh, Maybe we're more self-possessed. What's your view on that? Vin, it's very inspiring. Sometimes you would tell me things and my mind wanders into just times and moments and people that um, are, 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 are etched in my memory that brought me here. And I think about the term, and you, there's, a, there's a Vedic term called prapati. And the only way you can translate it into English is surrender. But it isn't surrender like we think in English, like to give up or to quit, or you beat me so I surrender, or you twist my arm and I say uncle, or I have more guns than you and you give up. It's not that type of thing. It means to just accept and immerse yourself in whatever it is. You mentioned your father being like the sun, right? It just shines and it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't ask for anything back. It just does what it does. These are the examples. The sun is the life giver. Um, And when we're not in sync with it, it can be a destroyer, but not because it's doing what it's doing. It's because of who we are. I think about people like that in my life. I I always reflect upon my paternal grandparents. 
And I, I recall my grandfather used to work very hard. And it was never a time when he didn't provide very well for all of us. Always there. And, and if you didn't know him, you would think he was a mean guy. He had a very stern face, very built man. He looked rough. He looked tough. But he poured his life into uh, my grandmother and all of us. I was speaking with one of the relatives about him. And I remember there were many days when he would work and he would be in his truck where I learned to drive stick shift in a truck and an old Chevy type truck. And he would rub a jar of ice water over his chest. And he would sit quietly with a stern look on his face and he would sip the water and rub the ice on his chest. When he died, he was only 57 when he died. He died of cirrhosis of the heart. And when they did his post-mortem, they said, yeah, his, the arteries to his heart were so hard they were cracking open. And they said, this man should have been in pain for years. But the pain that he had was sedated by the love that he had for all of us, that unsolicited devotion, fulfilling his duty to us. And I think about that. When I think about those days, all the times he would rub the ice on his chest. I recall a time when I was with my grandmother as a young kid, and she would give me opportunity to go to work with them in doing agricultural work in the fields. And I would tag along with my grandmother, and I realized that I thought I was doing a hard, good day's work, and I realized I was a little kid, I wasn't doing that much. She was babysitting me and keeping me near her, making sure I was safe. And we were sitting in an orchard as she was, we were picking grapes, they call cutting grapes. And she said to me, and I would always do what my grandmother said, and she, she was this, she would say, um, baby, I want you to sit still and just not move and just look up at those grapes. Tell me what you see. And I sat still and looked up at the grape, and my grandmother exploded in movement and chopped the head off of a rattlesnake that was just about to come upon me. And she said, I didn't want you to get in trouble. And she went right back to what she was doing. Good God, man, unsolicited devotion, just love. And to the day she died, when I was a grown man, she always said in the sweetest way, baby, that's how she felt about me. That's how your dad feels about you. And it may not be everything we want them to be. They're different personalities, but we're not them and they're not us. But love doesn't have that kind of sanction. It doesn't have that kind of restriction. We have family, as the Vedas told us, so we could learn about the world and other people. So we could transcend the, our own selfishness, go beyond our own egos and learn to admire, adore, honor, respect, and even possibly love people that are very different than us. That's what it does for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... Uh... That's a beautiful way to put it. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly how to express this, and maybe it's because we can't put this into words, but I just keep on getting this image in my head of this divine being, you know, radiant uh, with with light, shining, powerful, and that's the divinity in, inside. And that that thing which is just constantly shining, constantly giving, acting as though it requires nothing in return, all it's doing is is radiating the natural power that it has. And maybe that's where unsolicited devotion takes us. It takes us to a point where we are an expression of a power beyond what we can conceive. And the more of that we provide, the more we cultivate it in ourselves. So uh, just a final thought for you, Z. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's a beautiful concept. Let's do it again next week, man. All right. All right. Check in. Go put them babies to sleep. I got to get out of here. I got to go babysit. All right. Peace. Good talking to you, brother. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podbean, iTunes, 
or your favorite podcasting app. Each five-star review helps us bring you more unique and insightful content. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. Peace.